So I have to make fun of myself for a second. Everyone who knows me in my life knows that if you have a conversation with me, at some point I'll impulsively bring up my favorite musician. Um, but yeah, you don't. You wanna, can expose like, me for that documentary I made you watch, um, and I apparently made like twelve other of my friends watch. That is just like the bond. Like that's like Louise yeah. wants to be your friend. You're gonna sit down and watch this Bob Dylan <laughs> documentary <laughs> like, for six hours. Um, there's a documentary. Oh God, I'm in, I'm I infect everybody's podcast with this. This is so bad. Bring it on. I love it. Bring it on. <laughs> so if you ask anybody who's ever asked me to be on their podcast, they're like, oh, she's gonna talk about Bob Dylan which is really oh yes okay, okay so yep. i have <laughs> this alleges that bob dylan was born at 905 p.m in duluth minnesota, in duluth, minnesota. but will <laughs> i've been to that house <laughs> not that house you have literally that. yeah <laughs> bob dylan is a gemini sun taurus moon you know it's so funny sagittarius rising hey she's taurus moon taurus moon yeah. and you're a sag rising in the, in the middle <laughs> <Ew>. is bob <laughs> I feel like everybody in my life who knows me knows that I'm like a really big Dylan nerd. I think she really has a big. pin on her jacket right I now. I do. I also have a phone case with Bob Dylan on it. <laughs> Let's not talk about it. Um, One of the first times we hung out, we watched a three-hour documentary on Bob Dylan. Yeah. I, I'm i sorry. No, it was, it was great. It made me avoid my roommate, so I did not want to talk to you. Anyway, go on. Oh my. No, it's just me. I'm the problem. <laughs> I, I wrote um, three pages for someone else's podcast that I was doing about the connection between Bob Dylan and William Blake, who's like a poet from the 1700s, right? And there's very little connection, but I found some stuff. And then I love the, the original Dylan version from uh, the John Wesley Harding album. Comparing <laughs> y'all's birth charts to Bob Dylan's, and there's a lot of fun, sinister stuff in here. Um, is a, and Please say it is so. Isa and Bob both have um, their. Not Isa and Bob. She hates me. <laughs> oh no. Okay, I'm sorry. This is only hilarious to like. Nobody else is going to laugh at this part. <laughs> because do you know how deep this went for me? It's like really embarrassing. <laughs> it's truly a sickness. An obsession I've carried with me since my senior year of high school. The first record I ever owned of his was a vinyl copy of the 1975 album Blood on the Tracks. It's still my favorite album. Bob Dylan captivated me with his crystal clear imagery, quick wit, romantic delivery, and quirky stream of conscious style of storytelling. Needless to say, I've made it through his entire discography. And when I get obsessed with an artist, I like to read just about everything on them I can get my hands on. Really what I came to find out was that everything I loved about Dylan was significantly influenced by the beat generation of the late 40s and 50s. Writers like Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs, and for Dylan especially, Allen Ginsberg. He referred to Ginsberg as the holiest person he knew. If you watch the famous film for the song Subterranean Homesick Blues, you can spot Ginsberg in the background off to the left and you can hear the influence of Ginsberg's string of flashing images, style of writing on the lyrics. Welcome back to the B-Sides Podcast. 
I'm your host, Louise Nats. The influence of beat ideas is obvious even earlier in Dylan's career during his protest phase. The anti-war sentiments of Ginsburg's America. America, I can't stand my own mind. America, when will we end the human war? Go fuck yourself with your atom bomb. I don't feel good, don't bother. Is recognizably present in Masters of War. He fastened all the triggers for the others to fire. And then you sat back and watch when the death count gets higher. You hide in your mansion while the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud. And it's all right, Ma. Disillusion words like bullets bark as human gods aim for their mark Make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh-colored Christ that glow in the dark It's easy to see without looking too far that not much is really sacred Sees Dylan deep in the stream of conscious writing style of Howl Ginsburg's epic of a poem about everything from capitalism and the dangers of conformity to industrialism and finding beauty in destitution. Continuously 70 hours from Park to Pad to Bar to Bellevue to the Brooklyn Bridge, a lost battalion of platonic conversationalists jumping down the stoops, off fire escapes, off windowsills, off Empire State, out of the moon, yakety-yacking, screaming, vomiting, whispering facts and memories and anecdotes and eyeball kicks and shocks of hospitals and jails and wars, Whole intellects disgorged in total recall for seven days and nights with brilliant eyes meet for the synagogue cast on the pavement who vanished into nowhere. Then when Dylan went electric, it became even more evident as his songs started to sound more spontaneously written, like 65's Like a Rolling Stone, which has been said to have been influenced by Kerouac's On the Road, which Dylan had been reading long before he came to Greenwich Village. There are even photos and videos of Dylan and Ginsburg making a pilgrimage to the grave of Jack Kerouac, who a lot of people signify as the leader of the beat movement. Frozen and sliced microscopically in morgues of the North. How about the quivering meat of elephants? Of kindness, admitted to the... What I liked actually was conceptions of delicate kneecaps, like kissing my kitten in the belly, the softness of our reward. So it's like a Shakespeare sonnet, it ends funny. He quit football because he wanted to study Shakespeare. So, that's what's going to happen to you? <laughs> no, I want to be in an unmarked grave. Yeah, I, went, I laid a copy of Howl on Baudelaire's grave. Popular music and the beats go hand in hand. Their lives and work gave birth to a new countercultural mindset and radical new ideals for art and society that would inspire whole movements of music, from folk and punk rock glam, and beyond. The Beat Generation writers, artists, and poets were the original pillars of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, way before the hippies of the late 60s. They were seeking out fresh ideas and hunting for new truths in the pursuit of sexual and spiritual liberation. Their work contained pacifist themes, tales of drug experimentation, endless travel, and generally stories of living a life that defied the strict cultural norms of their time. 
They spoke openly about subjects that the broader public found inarguably abhorrent. It's pretty surreal to think that a book like William S. Burroughs' Junkie, in which he describes his days as a heroin addict and dealer, would even be publishable in 1953. Two nights after meeting Roy and Herman, I used one of the cigarettes, which was my first experience with junk. A cigarette is like a toothpaste tube with a needle on the end. You push a pin down through the needle... The pin punctures the seal and the cigarette is ready to shoot. Morphine hits the backs of the legs first, then the back of the neck. A spreading wave of relaxation, slackening the muscles away from the bones so that you seem to float without outlines. Like lying in warm salt water. But this movement kicked the doors wide open for artistic freedom of expression. These writers made it possible to let the everyday Americans see past Main Street and into the side doors and back alleyways of America. The Beats gave artists the ability to give their audiences a glimpse of reality in their artwork, especially musicians. But before they influenced music, the Beats themselves were being influenced by the sounds of bebop jazz. This style of music had evolved from swing and was characterized by new creative forms and structures and fierce improvisation. This new kind of jazz was championed by the likes of Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, Max Roach, and Thelonious Monk. Songs like Lester Leapson by legendary saxophonist Lester Young directly influenced Ginsberg's howl. These radical new sounds called for the exposure of radical new ideas. Now, for the 1950s, when people think of popular music, they think about the beginnings of rock and roll. Little Richard, Eddie Cochran, Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly. And that was the soundtrack for the teenagers then, the generation of kids after the Beats. They had turned away from jazz, which they saw as their parents' lame music, for more simplistic, fluffy pop hits. Those songs are great, but... Unless you're talking about Chuck Berry, in terms of lyrical value, they're pretty uninspiring. Especially at the turn of the decade, when novelty songs started taking over the pop charts. Songs like Chantilly Lace by The Big Bopper. Chantilly Lace and a pretty face and a ponytail Hanging down, wiggling the walk and a giggling the talk But in just a few years, 50s rock and roll teenagers were growing up, and some of them growing out of rock and roll. By the time the 60s rolled around, they were in their 20s, and they were ready for something more sophisticated. They were the group that didn't bat an eye when the Beatles came to America. Many of them turned to folk music at the colleges. Groups like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, they became popular. Then, when Dylan burst onto the scene, a new bohemian culture began to take form. Music with meaning was coming into style. Ginsberg said once he felt that when he heard Dylan for the first time, he knew that beat culture was being passed on to another time by a new group of artists. When I got back from India and got to the West Coast, there's a poet, Charlie Plymel, at a party in Bolinas, played me a record of this new young folk singer. And I heard 
hard, uh, hard rain, I think. And wept. Because it seemed that the uh, torch had been passed to another generation from earlier bohemian or beat illumination and self-empowerment. And carry the torch they did, far into the 60s, 70s, and beyond. As new musicians got a hold of beat culture, popular music was infused with the anti-establishment and nonconformist ideas of these 50s literary revolutionaries. In 1967, the iconic album The Velvet Underground and Nico was released to harsh criticism due to its openness about the realities of illegal drugs, S&M, and prostitution, among other things. Lou Reed was the songwriter and lead vocalist and guitar player for the band. He once said Burroughs broke down the door for visual artists and musicians alike. You can see a direct line from Burroughs' work, Junkie. As this relaxing way spread, I experienced a strong feeling of fear. I had the feeling that some horrible image was just beyond the field of vision. Moving as I turned my head so that I never quite saw it. Through to the Velvet's track, Heroin. Heroin. It's my wife. And it's my life. <laughs> because a man I to my vein needs to a center. visceral descriptions of drug use and its consequences. I would even argue that Junkie had a hold on Reed well into his solo career, in which he would continue to be unabashed in his showing of the harsh realities of life as a user. One of the most dramatic being on his 1978 record, Street Hassle. When someone turns that blue, it's a universal truth, and you just know that bitch will never fuck again. By the way, that's really some bad shit that you came to our place with. But you ought to be more careful around the little girls. It's either the best or it's the worst. And since I don't have to choose, I guess I won't. And I know this ain't no way to treat a guest. But why don't you grab your old lady by the feet and just lay her out in the darkest street? And by morning, she's just another hit and run. You know, some people got no choice and they can never find a voice to talk with that they could even call their own. So the first thing that they see that allows them the right to be why they follow it. You know, it's called bad luck. Many call Patti Smith the punk poet laureate because her work seamlessly marries poetry and rock music. She wears her love for the beats on her sleeve. She was friends with Allen Ginsberg and continues to perform his work live as he would have. They met when Smith was 22 years old, looking particularly androgynous, and Ginsburg, who was openly gay, mistook her for a young man. Still, they developed a deep friendship, and his nonconformist, individualist attitude made a lasting stamp on Smith's frantic, soulful, rage-rock poetry pieces. 40 hours, $36 a week, but it's a paycheck, Jack. It's so hot in here, I 
heart like Sahara. You can faint from the heat, but these bitches are just too lame to understand. Too goddamn grateful to get this job, to know they're getting screwed up the ass. All these women that got no teeth and gum or cranium, and the way they suck hot sausage with me, well, I wasn't saying too much neither. Other artists didn't just take inspiration from the themes of beat literature, but also the beat artistic methods and writing techniques. David Bowie adopted Burroughs' cut-up technique for his songwriting on albums like Diamond Dogs. Cut-ups are when a writer finishes a text, then physically cuts up the piece into fragments and rearranges it into something new. Sometimes it leads to new ideas, and sometimes it just left fans puzzled asking how high was this guy when he wrote this? But the basic idea was that the artist could search for new meaning in a handmade blur of seemingly nonsensical ideas. This is the way I do cut-ups. I don't know if it's like the way Brian Geisen does his or, or Barrows does his, I don't know. But this is the way I do. I've used this method only on a couple of actual songs. When I've used it for more than anything else is igniting anything that might be in my imagination. I mean, you can often come up with very interesting uh, attitudes to look into. I tried doing it with diaries and things, and I was finding out amazing things about me and what I'd done and where, where I was going. And a lot of the things that I'd done, it, it seemed that it would predict things about the future or tell me a lot about the past. It's really quite an astonishing thing. I suppose it's a very Western tarot. This could really go on and on. Beat writing touched the art of so many, from Paul McCartney to Nirvana and back. Eventually, though, influence finds its way back again. When Bob Dylan was at a high point in his career, he invited Ginsburg to go on the road with him. Ginsburg performed on stage as part of the Rolling Thunder Review, right next to the likes of Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell, Roger McGuinn, and Jack Elliott. We started out trying to recover America. We discovered a certain amount of truth about ourselves. Old friends who thought their loves had been lost were able to get together and uh, face each other eye to eye and sing over an electrical microphone to please the desires of myriad young yearners who had been seeking some kind of union and community and saw they're in an image of that community. You who saw it all or saw flashes and fragments, take from us some example, try and get yourselves together, clean up your act, find your community, pick up on some kind of redemption of your own consciousness, become more mindful of your own friends, your own work, your own proper meditation, your own proper art, your own beauty, go out and make it for your own eternity. I think maybe Ginsburg could see where poetry culture was going. Perhaps he thought becoming a musician would help his work stay relevant to the next generation. Art forms evolve, with one generation picking out what it likes from those who came before and transforming it into something new and original. Rock poetics didn't steal beat themes, or use them as a crutch to aid their unoriginality. They flocked to beat themes and ideas because, as the new generation, they didn't identify with the mainstream, cream puff, suburban culture that was trying to box them in and tell them how they should live. They identified with the mad ones, as Kerouac would say. The rockers in the 60s and beyond 
they found themselves and lived in the writing of the revolutionary beat generation. Thanks for listening. See you here next time on the B-Sides Podcast. I'm your host, Louise Nets.